We are all trusting in something at all points and at all times in our life. There is never a time when we aren't trusting in someone or something, whether we're conscious of the fact or not. Who or what we're trusting in is most clearly seen when a crisis comes into our life. It could be a family crisis, it could be a personal crisis, it could be a national crisis or a worldwide crisis. But whatever the crisis, when we, uh, we, what we turn to, what we lean on, what we hope in, or whoever we trust in most, or is whoever or whatever we're trusting in most. When these crises come into our life, God is there and God is saying to us, trust me. Open your Bible to Isaiah 7 so we can see an example of this. Isaiah 7 should be on page 522 in your pew Bibles. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read the whole chapter, but we're going to focus on the last portion tonight. Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah, that Rezan, king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Remelia, king of Israel, went up against Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. When it was reported the house of David, saying the Arameans have taken a stand by Ephraim, his heart and his and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake from the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go now to meet Ahaz and your son Shir Jashab at the pool at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the road of the fuller's field, and say to him, Take care, be calm, have no fear. Do not be faint-hearted because of these two stumps of smoldering logs on account of the fierce anger of Rezan and Aram, the son of Remelia. Because Aram with Ephraim, the son of Remelia, has planned evil against you, saying, Let's go up against Judah and terrorize it. Take it for ourselves by assault and set up the son of Tobiel as the king in the midst of it. This is what the Lord says. It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Aram is Damascus, the head of Damascus is Rezan. Now within another 65 years, Ephraim will be broken in pieces, so it is no longer a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remelio. If you will not believe, you will certainly not last. Then the Lord said again to Ahaz, Ask for a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz says, I will not ask, nor will I put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, listen now, house of David, is it too trivial a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a son. Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. She will name him Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey. And at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy knows enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land of these two kings you dread will be abandoned. The Lord will bring on you and your people and on your father's house such days have not come since the day that Ephraim separated from Judah, the days of the king of Assyria. On that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is in the remotest parts of the canal of Egypt, for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. They will all come and settle on the steep ravines and on the ledges of the cliffs and on the thorn bushes and all the watering places. On that day, the Lord will shave with a razor hired from the regions beyond Euphrates River, that is, the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the legs, and it will also remove the beard. Now on that day, a person may keep alive only a heifer and a pair of sheep, and because of the abundance of milk produced, he will eat curds. For everyone who is left within the land will eat curds and honey. And it will come about on that day 
that every place where there used to be a thousand vines valued a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. People will come there with the bows and arrows because the land will be briars and thorns. As for all the hills which used to be cultivated with the plow, you will not go there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place for pasturing oxen and for sheep to trample. The title of the message tonight is Standing Firm. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you tonight. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and devotion. Father, we want tonight to be able to stand firm in whatever may come into our lives. We know from your word you are a, a God who is here, a God who is present, a God who is actively at work. You are strength and our shield. Father, you are very present in times of danger, in times of distress, so we do not have to fear, but we do have to trust. We do have to trust in you. We do have to believe you. We do have to take you at your word and rest in what you've said. So tonight, let your word and spirit work together to stir that kind of faith in us that we would be a people who take your word at face value that, Lord, if you said it, we believe it. We're going to live it. We're going to hope and trust in what you've said. Fill me tonight with your Holy Spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me not to be a hindrance in any way to anything you want said or what you want done. Glorify yourself among us. Have your way in our hearts and our lives and make us a people better able to go out into a dark and a dying world and shine as lights for the glory of Christ. We ask in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, Isaiah was called to be a prophet in the year King Uzziah died. This was around 740 B.C. and where we are in Isaiah 7 is about five years into the future. Verse 1, we're told about a crisis that has come upon the nation of Judah. Uh, The Assyrian Empire in the world is rising, it is growing, it is going out to conquer, uh, and it is basically taking over anything it wants to take over and no one can stop them. At this point, it has its eyes on the region where you find Judah, Samaria, and Syria. And they plan to come. Well, this causes fear among all of the people of the region and all of the kings of the region. And the king of Syria and the king of Samaria join together to make a military alliance so they can together fight off the king of Assyria. But even with those two kings in alliance together, they're not sure they can win against the mighty king of Assyria. So they go to Judah and they offer him a place. King Ahaz a place in their alliance, but he turns them down. They don't appreciate He is turning them down. And so they begin to threaten and imply and and say things they might do. And that doesn't work. And so they go to come against Judah all by themselves. And the goal is they will conquer Judah. They will depose Ahaz. They will set their own man on the throne. And he will be a puppet king who will join in their alliance and work with them. Ahaz hears this and he is afraid. He is afraid of what is going on. And what will happen in his life. And in this time, God is there. And in this time of crisis, God is speaking to Ahaz. And he is saying, trust me. And he words it this way from verse 4. Take care. Be calm. Have no fear. Do not be faint hearted. God knows full well what these two kings have planned. Not only does God know what these kings have planned. God has a response. To what the kings have planned from verse 7. It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. Right? The the strength of Syria and the strength of Samaria are in their kings. And they are nothing in comparison to the one who is the strength of Judah 
and that is the Lord Himself. Therefore, their plans will not stand, nor will they come to pass. Now, this is the message given to them. And now, God tells Ahaz, you have a choice. If you will not believe, you will not last, my Bible, or stand in many others. So Ahaz has a choice. He can trust God, he can believe God, or he cannot trust God, or he cannot please or believe God. And really, these are the only two choices he has in this moment. Either he takes God at his word, and he takes care, he stays calm, he has no fear, he's not faint-hearted because God will not let it stand nor come to pass, or he doesn't trust God, and he begins to come up with his own way to stop their plans from coming to pass. If he, and, and the decision he makes will have a lasting consequence. If he believes, he'll stand. He'll survive the Assyrians. He'll survive the two nations that are coming against him. He'll be okay. But if he doesn't, he will not stand. When we come into a crisis situation, we have the same choice Ahaz had. We can believe God or we cannot believe God. And, and truly, these are the only choices we have. And if we... What choice we make, it makes a determination about what happens in our future. Just like with Ahaz, if we believe, we'll stand. And if we do not believe, we will not be able to stand. Uh, and so the key truth we've talked about in this chapter, we must believe God if we're going to stand firm in crisis situations. And this passage showed us three ways we had to believe God. We must believe God. We must believe the word of God. Right. The first nine verses deal with God's message to Ahaz. God has told him, be if don't be afraid, be calm. I'm going to take care of it. Just trust me. This is the word of God to King Ahaz. And he has a choice to make at that point. He can believe God's word is right. He can believe God's word is real and he can hold on to that or he cannot. It's the same with us. If we are ever going to be able to stand firm, we must believe God's word. And believing God's word means we believe it's right on anything it says and it's real. It doesn't present to us a pie in the sky ideal of the way things could be or ought to be but never will be. It presents the reality of how things are. Anything God's word says we as disciples of Jesus can do, we can do through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. So we believe God's word. Secondly, we must believe the sign from God. God then, to, to kind of firm up Ahaz's faith, he offers to let him pick a sign. Anything you want, as high as heaven, as deep as Sheol, you say do it. God's going to do it to prove to you that he will not let their plans stand nor come to pass. Now, of course, Ahaz says, oh, I don't want to tempt God, but he doesn't really mean that. He is not acting in good faith when he says that. Rather, he already has his own plan and he understands if he accepts God's sign, then he must do it God's way. So God gives him a sign on his own. A woman of the day that Ahaz and Isaiah knew would get married, bear a child, and before the child was old enough to choose right from wrong, then these two lands would be abandoned. Now for us, we live on this side of Matthew and this side of the Gospels. So we know that this sign was initially for something there, but it was also a prophetic sign about the birth of Jesus. So the sign for us is the Son of God. 
So we must believe the sign from God and we must trust the Son of God. Jesus is the ultimate sign from God. that God is going to keep His promises, fulfill His word, and do all the things He said He would do. All of the promises of God are in Him, yes, and in Him, amen, to the glory of God. So we must trust the Son of God. We must trust the Word of God. And then finally, the last one. We must believe the warnings of God. Now, the last of this chapter is, is really, it's a prophetic. God saying this is what's going to happen. And it's all bad. Now, it seems like a big shift. Verses 1 through 9, God is, trust me, it's going to be okay. Just believe me. Verse 9 through 16, or 10 through 16, it's, let me give you a sign to show you it's going to be okay. And then in verse 17 through 25, it suddenly shifted and it's not going to be okay. But the great threat in these last verses is not the king of Assyria. It is the Lord God himself. The Lord is going to be the one who brings all of these bad things to pass upon Judah. So what happened? What has caused this shift in, in motive, shift in, in the way God is speaking? Well, remember God told, Isaiah, or told Ahaz in verse 9 that if he would not believe, he would not stand. Ahaz did not believe. Rather than trusting God, the God who said, take care, be calm, have no fear, do not be faint-hearted, their plans will not stand nor come to pass, Ahaz makes an alliance with the king of Assyria. Second Kings 16 tells us that somewhere in this time frame where we're at in Isaiah 7, King Ahaz sends messengers to the king of Assyria to make an alliance with him. But he's not making an alliance as equals. Instead, he takes all of the silver and gold out of the temple and all of the treasures out of his palace and he sends it to the king of Assyria and he sends it with this message. And he calls him, in the message, he calls himself the king of Assyria's servant and the king of Assyria's son. And he asks him to save Samaria, or to save him from Samaria and Syria. And in doing this, King Ahaz leads Judah to become a vassal of Assyria. He is, in essence, a puppet king who is ruled by the king of Assyria. His plan seems to work, according to what we read in 2 Kings 16. Uh, once Assyria gets the money and gets his pledge of loyalty, they rise up and they go out to conquer Syria. Once Syria has been conquered, the Assyrian king sends word to Ahaz to come to him. And probably he's to come to him to pledge his loyalty in person. While Ahaz is in Syria... He goes to Damascus, the capital, and there he enters a temple and he sees an altar to a pagan god. And he thinks it's quite snazzy. He is really taken by the way it looks and how it's made. And he remembers it and he kind of sketches it out in his mind. And then when he returns to Judah, he has people build a replica of the pagan altar. And then he not only has it built, he has it placed in the temple. 
And initially, it's placed in the temple alongside the altar of God. The altar of God is sort of scooched off to the side to make room for it, but they're both there. But over time, the altar of God is taken all the way out, and this altar completely replaces it. And then not only does he replace God's altar with a pagan altar, he begins to make sacrifices to the pagan gods on this altar in the temple of God, making the blood sacrifices. And then he begins to make or he commands the priest to only use this altar and never to use the altar of God and their sacrifices, which they agree to do. Ahaz turned away from God's promise to protect him and hit God's promise to protect the nation. He chose instead to rely on himself and his ability to negotiate a treaty with the most powerful nation in the world at this time. This decision led him into idolatry and it eventually led the entire nation into idolatry as they built kind of built miniature altars and put them on the street corners and made sacrifices all throughout Jerusalem. The Lord had told him, if you will not believe, you certainly will not stand. Ahaz didn't believe, and so Ahaz was not going to stand. Since Ahaz would not believe, verse 17, the Lord was going to bring on Ahaz and on Judah the very things they feared. The king of Assyria himself would eventually turn on Judah, and he would come and conquer them. And when he comes to conquer them, they would, in verse 17, they would bring devastation on the land. The Lord will bring upon you and your people and your father's house such days have not come since the day that Ephraim separated from Judah and the lands of Assyria. When Assyria comes, they would swarm like the swarm of the land like bees and flies. On that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is in the remotest part of the canals of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle on the steep ravines and the ledge of the cliffs and all the thorn bushes and on all the watering places. They would humiliate Ahaz and Judah. Verse 20. And on that day, the Lord will shave with a razor, hired from the regions beyond the Euphrates River. Notice that is the king of Assyria. The head with the hair of the legs, and it will also remove the beard. This sort of shaving would have been an act of humiliation. Uh, an act of, to degrade them and humiliate them. And then when Assyria comes, they would make the land so desolate that people would eat curds and honey because there would be no crops. Instead of crops, there would only be briars and thorns. Now on that day, a person may keep alive only a heifer and a pair of sheep. Because of the abundance of the milk produced, he will eat curds for everyone who is left. When the land will eat curds and honey and will come about on that day. Every place where there used to be a thousand vines valued at a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. People will come there with bows and arrows because all the land will be briars and thorns. As for the hills which used to be cultivated with the plow, you will not go there for fear of briars and thorns. They will become a place for pasturing oxen and for the sheep to trample. Ahaz did not believe the word of God. He did not believe the sign from God. And he did not believe the warnings from God. And so Ahaz would find out God was indeed a man of his word. God would do all he said he would do. God's warning about not being able to stand would come to pass. And what's key to notice here is God himself would do this. 
What's going to happen in these verses is not a matter of the king of Assyria is a treaty breaker and not a good guy. He is a treaty breaker and he's not a good guy. But it's not the king of Assyria who is ultimately behind what's going to happen to Judah. It is the Lord himself. Verse 17, the Lord will bring these things to pass. In verse 18, it's the Lord who will whistle for the Assyrians to come. Verse 20, on that day the Lord will shave with the razor. The Lord would be the one to humiliate them. And then over and over again, we see the repetition of on that day, verse 18. On that day, verse 20. On that day, verse 21. On that day, in verse 23. All of this is the language of judgment. Ahaz was warned about the judgment, but he did not believe. And since he did not believe, he faced the judgment of God. And there is a lesson for us in this. Just as Ahaz would not stand if he didn't believe, neither will we be able to stand if we don't believe. We must believe the word of God. We must believe the son of God. And we must believe the warnings of God. For God has given us warnings about a judgment to come just as surely as he has given Ahaz warnings about the judgment to come. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 5, page 906. Now, if you're familiar with 1 Thessalonians, you know 1 Thessalonians 4.13 through really 5.11 all go together. And it's a teaching about the, the return of Jesus. And when you study the passage, you find out that the return of Jesus will not be the same for everyone. Everyone won't have the same experience on the day Jesus returns. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18, talk about what the return of Jesus will be like for those who are disciples of Jesus. It says, But we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, so you will not grieve, as indeed the rest of mankind do, who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead, so also God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. For we say this to you by the word of the Lord. That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and who remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So the promises and what it talks about for Jesus return for those who are disciples of Jesus, it is a comfort, it is a, a source of encouragement for us. But there's a shift when we get to 1 Thessalonians 5 about what it's like. Now as to the, verse 1, Now as to the periods and times, brothers and sisters, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord is coming, just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Now, in chapter 4, it just talks about the return of Jesus. But in chapter 5, it specifically calls it the day of the Lord. Now, we could 
get in our mind that the day of the Lord is just another way of saying the return of Jesus. And, and this is partially true, but it misses the force of what the day of the Lord means when you look at the big context of God's word. Listen to how one of my commentaries describes the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a period of time in which God will deal with wicked men directly and dramatically in fearful judgment. Today, a man may be a blasphemer of God, an atheist, can denounce God and teach bad doctrine. Seemingly, God does nothing about it. But the day designated in Scripture as the day of the Lord is coming. When God will punish human sin and he will deal in wrath and judgment with a Christ rejecting world. The day of the Lord is not when Jesus returns to claim his people. The day of the Lord is when Jesus returns to bring judgment on those who have rejected them. We see this not merely in 1 Thessalonians 5, but all throughout God's Word. In the Old and the New Testament, there are around 32 references to the day of the Lord. And in every reference, unless I've missed one, every time they deal with judgment in one way or another. Now, Paul does not leave us to speculate on whether or not he means that same meaning of judgment in this passage. And he lays it out very clearly. Right. It's coming like a thief in the night. It is a time when people are saying peace and safety. But in reality, sudden destruction comes upon them and they will not escape. So the unbelieving world. They think it's just an ordinary day. It's just like any other day. Day is going on. People are getting up. They're going to work. They're eating breakfast. They're marrying giving in marriage, doing all the things they would normally do. And suddenly, destruction overtakes them and they do not escape. Now, the next time Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he gives us a better picture of what he means by sudden destruction. Second Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9, the apostle writes, When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution, to those who do not know God, to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These people will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his, of his power. Now, notice what he's describing here happens when the Lord returns. Right. So this is the return of the Lord, but it's not chapter four, verse 13 through 18. It's not a source of comfort and encouragement. In this case, it is a time where there is sudden destruction comes upon people. But notice specifically who it comes upon. It comes upon those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel. Now, those are significant phrases that mean quite a bit. Right. So do not know God. That narrows it down to. And of course, we would know that means Yahweh. So it's not just people who say, well, I believe there may be a God out there somewhere. They're the ones it's talking about. But it's people who do not know Yahweh, the Lord God of heaven. But not only people who say, well, sure, I believe in God. But those who do not believe the gospel. So it's narrow. It's coming for those who, who not only don't know God, but do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
those who have not repented of their sins and believed in Christ, judgment is coming for them. The reason this is important is because culture around us tells us if there is a heaven, good people go there. And if there is a hell, bad people go there. But culture seeks to define good and bad in a variety of ways which are completely subjective and always contrary to what God's word has to say. God's word does not teach us a subjective view of good and bad. God's word does not tell us good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. God's word tells us those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel are repenting of their sins and believing in Jesus. They will face sudden destruction when Jesus returns. And this is true whether culture defined them as a good person or a bad person. Now notice also how this sudden destruction is described. It is talked about Jesus coming in flaming fire and he deals out retribution. And they will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. This is terrifying to contemplate. But this is what will happen on the day of the Lord. But this isn't all. Look again at 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 and 3. For yourselves know full well the day of the Lord is coming like a thief in the night. When they're saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Notice the phrase, they shall not escape. What this means is not one single person who does not know the Lord, not one single person who has not obeyed the gospel, will escape the flaming fire of God's retribution. Not one single person who does not know God and does not obey the gospel will escape paying the penalty of eternal destruction. No one, not a single one. God's word paints a picture. The day of the Lord is not something that can be escaped by any natural means. It can only be escaped through faith in Jesus. Over and over again, God's word tells us that the people the day of the Lord is coming for do not escape. I like how the book of Amos, the prophet Amos, illustrates they're not escaping. Woe to you who are longing for the day of the Lord. Now, Amos is preaching at a time when the people of God are far from God. They're not living as they should and they're looking forward. There's bad people, worse than them, from the outside pressing on them. And they are longing for the day when the Lord will return and He will set things aright. Basically... They're wicked, rebelling against God, but longing for God to come and punish the sinners out there. Amos corrects their view. He said, woe. And he always know that the prophetic woe is always bad. It pictures destruction coming upon the person. But woe to you who are longing for the day of the Lord. For what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? Why? Because you're not living for the Lord. It will be darkness and not light. It's not going to be a day of hope for you. And here's where he talks about a person not escaping. As when a man flees from a lion and a bear confronts him. Or when he goes home and leans his hand against a wall and a snake bites him. And it just pictures a person, no matter what they do to escape, they're caught. The day of the Lord is coming. And not one single person who does not know the Lord who has not obeyed the gospel, will escape. Jesus is coming. 
at some point. And when he does, he will claim his people as their own and take them to a place where they will be with him forever. And when he comes, he will also bring sudden destruction on all people who do not know the Lord and who have not obeyed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the warning we must believe. This is what God's word teaches. This is what we as disciples of Jesus must believe. Now here's how this all connects back to Isaiah and our need to believe God so we can stand firm. Ahaz was told if he didn't believe he wouldn't stand, but if he did believe he would stand. The judgment Ahaz faced wasn't God's want for Ahaz. God wanted Ahaz to stand. God was for Ahaz. God had demonstrated he was for Ahaz by sending him a message to the prophet Isaiah telling him to take care, to be calm, to have no fear, to not be faint hearted because their plans would not stand nor would they come to pass. God then further proved his being for Ahaz by offering him a sign. Any sign Ahaz wanted, God would perform at Ahaz's request just to reinforce his faith so he would know. He could take care. He could be calm. He didn't have to be afraid. He didn't have to be faint-hearted because their plans would not stand nor come to pass. But he, and the judgment that was coming, didn't have to come for him if he had only believed. But Ahaz did not believe. And in not believing, he didn't believe the judgment. He didn't believe the warning. And he found God was a person of his word. The judgment came upon him just as God said it would. What we see in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 is going to happen exactly as the Lord has said. For those of us who are disciples of Jesus, there is comfort and encouragement and hope in these words. But. What we see in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 3. That's going to happen too. Not, not to those who have believed in Jesus. Not to those who are disciples of Jesus. But to those who do not know God and have not obeyed the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Both of these events are going to happen exactly as the word of God tells us. It will. And which one we experience is determined by where we are with Jesus. God is for us and wants us to experience 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. God has proven He is for us by giving us His Word, which includes the promise and the warning. God has proven He is for us by sending His Son to die on the cross for our sins. God has proven He is for us by sending His Holy Spirit to reveal the Son, convict us of sin, guide us along the best pathway for our lives. God has proven He is for us by showing us how clearly the warnings are and the judgment is. And now we must choose. Will we believe God? 
Will we believe his word? Will we believe his son? Will we believe his warnings? If so, then on the day of the Lord, we will stand. The day described in 1 Thessalonians 5, this is the ultimate crisis moment. We, you were here when we studied Revelation last year. You've seen what this entails in greater detail. That's the ultimate crisis moment. The only way to stand in that moment is by believing God, His Word, His Son, and His warnings. Will we believe and so stand? Or will we be like Ahaz and try to go our own way and try to do our own thing and so fall in judgment? This, this is the choice. All of us are going to experience one of these two. 4, 13 through 18, 5, 1 through 3. And if we want to experience 4, 13 through 18, we'll not experience it because the people of the world tell us we're good. We'll not experience it because we work out our own way to have our deal with God. We'll not experience it because we've planned our own morality and we're following our own code. We'll not experience it because of any reason other than we believed God, His Word, His Son, and His warning. We knew God and we obeyed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ahaz thought he could make his own plans and bypass God's counsel, God's warning, and God's ways. And he found out in a miserable fashion he could not. And the people of the world will find out similarly if they refuse to know God and they refuse to obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. But there's more than this. We who believe God, we who believe His Word, we who believe His Son, we who believe His warnings. How do we act toward those who don't know God and don't obey the gospel? How do we interact with them? What is our goal in our relationships with them? The prophet Joel tells us how we should act toward those who don't know God and don't obey the gospel. Notice it's the day of the Lord. It's coming. So what does Joel say to do? Blow a trumpet. Sound an alarm. And let all the inhabitants of the land fear. Let them tremble. As disciples of Jesus. Who believe God. The word of God. The son of God. And the warnings of God. It is our job to blow the trumpet. And sound the alarm. Because Jesus is coming. And when he does. He will deal out retribution. On those who do not know God. And those who do not obey the gospel. And he will take this retribution with a flaming fire. And he will punish them with everlasting destruction. And not a single person. Who doesn't know God. Or who doesn't obey the gospel. Will escape. If we believe this is true, we must blow the trumpet. We must sound the alarm to our friends, 
our relatives, our associates, and our neighbors who don't know God and who don't obey the gospel. And as we sound the alarm, we must pray they will tremble at the message we bring. Our culture suffers from a terminal lack of the fear of the Lord. Few people in our day tremble at the word of God. Sadly, this is even true among those who profess to be disciples of Jesus. Few people will read in God's word where they were something and they're believing wrong and will tremble that they're wrong. Few people will read in God's word about something they're doing that's wrong and will tremble because they're wrong. The vast majority, again, even of those who profess to be disciples of Jesus, will simply say, no one's perfect. Well, the world is different. They will find a reason why their right in God's word is wrong. This is a terminal lack of the fear of the Lord. And if it's that way within the church who profess to know God and obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, what is it like among those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? Few in the world today tremble at the sure and the certain judgment of God that's coming. Few tremble at the thought of standing before the throne of God and having to give an account for their lives. But as disciples of Jesus, we must pray. People will again tremble at these things. Those who live lives contrary to the word of God should tremble under the weight of the word of God. Those who do not know God should tremble at the sure and certain judgment of God. Those who do not obey the gospel should tremble at the thought of standing before the throne of God. Jesus is coming back. And if we believe God, his word, his son and his warnings. We must blow the trumpet. We must sound the alarm. And we must pray. People will again tremble at this message. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and your goodness. Thank you for your word and the sure guide you've given us. Lord, thank you that you're for us. Father, today, help us, one, to be sure we know you and we have obeyed your gospel. And two, help us to be sure we sound the alarm, we blow the trumpet. Lord, even the great apostle Paul said the fear of the Lord motivated him in sharing the gospel. Father, because we know you and because we have obeyed the gospel doesn't mean we are exempted from trembling at the thought of what's coming. Make us a people who are awed by you, who fear you in the ways we should. And Lord, those that came to our minds when we talked about those who don't know God and those who don't obey the gospel, cause them to tremble the weight of your word. Cause them to tremble the judgment to come. Cause them to tremble at the thought of standing before you and explaining why in their arrogance 
they refused your call to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. I pray you begin this work in our community. Cause the people of Gaiman to tremble at what's coming. Father, I pray for our prodigals from our church. Most all of them know the word in one way or another. There's stuff hiding in their hearts. And Lord, take that and make them tremble at the word. Make them tremble at the judgment to come. Make them tremble at standing before the great white throne. Bring them home. Bring them to Jesus. Turn them into fully devoted followers of Christ. We ask in His name. Amen.